Amen. I'm going to start tonight in Proverbs chapter 4. These wonderful scriptures that give us instruction on how to, to take hold of all that God has provided for us through the work of Jesus. Beginning in verse 20, it says, My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them, my words, not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. I want to talk to you tonight about one of these, uh, uh, one part of this instruction. In verse 21, let them, speaking of the word of God, let them not depart from thine eyes. The Bible says in Psalm 107, verse 20, that God sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And it's talking about uh, his people, his, the servants of God of the Old Testament. But we've got what the Bible calls in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, a better covenant established upon better promises. So if healing was a part of the old covenant, which it was, thank God it was, and we've got a better covenant established on better promises, that would have to mean that the things, that, the benefits and the good parts of the covenant of the Old Testament belong to us as well with additional benefits. See, if the, if the old covenant contained healing for the physical body and the new covenant didn't, then it couldn't be a better covenant established on better promises. It'd be a different covenant, but it wouldn't be a better one. The only way that we can identify for certain that the new covenant is better if it, is if it has all the benefits of the old covenant plus more. That's the only thing that would make it a better covenant. Most of you, many of you, most of you, whatever the case might be, have heard Brother Hagin's testimony of healing, how he received his healing. He was born premature and he had uh, a deformed heart. There were uh, all kinds of issues that he had uh, when he was born into the earth, blood disease and, uh, and other things as well. Brother Hagin said that the doctor told him that there were four different things that was wrong with his body, that any one of them would be life-threatening and, and critical. So he was definitely at a disadvantage in a lot of ways. And there came a point in time where he was about 16 years old where he became bedfast. He had gotten worse and worse, and so he got to the point where he just couldn't move around. There was a great deal of paralysis involved with his condition as well. And he started looking in the Word, and the Holy Ghost began to teach him because he didn't know anybody that knew about healing. He didn't know anybody that even preached healing. But he found some scriptures in the Word through great effort on his part. He uh, would relate how that it would take him sometimes 30 or 40 minutes to, move his, to get enough movement out of his hand to turn a page. And he said that of all the things that the Lord taught him about receiving his healing by faith and so forth, he said the, of the hardest part was seeing himself well. See here in, in verse 21, when it says, let them, talking about the word of God, let them not depart from thine eyes. If the word doesn't depart from your eyes, then that would have to mean that you would see yourself with the answer. And that was what he said was the hardest part of his struggle to conquer sickness and disease by the word of God. He said he kept seeing himself die. Well, he's grown up, and that's all he's known from the time that he was a little boy 
his family made him aware of why he couldn't run and play like some of the other kids and so forth. And so he's grown up all of his life expecting to die at an early age. In fact, the doctors uh, told his family, and his family wound up sharing this with him as well, that there was no record of anybody with the, the conditions that he had in his body living past the age of 16. Well, as I said, when he was 16 years old, just before his 16th birthday, actually, he became bedfast. And so he was preparing to die. His family was preparing him to die. But he came across the word. He came across Mark eleven twenty three, And God began to teach him some things. The Lord began to show him some other scriptures like Mark, 11, um, like Mark 5, chapter 5, beginning in verse 25 where it talks about the woman with the issue of blood. The Lord showed him something in that scripture and he asked him a question. The Lord's question was, did you notice that her faith made her whole? Well, Brother Hagin remarked and said, no, I didn't notice that. So he got out his Bible as much as he was able and turned, finally got to Mark, 11, Mark chapter 5, rather, and he saw that her faith made her whole. Jesus said in Mark 5, verse 34, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole as thy plague. Well, there was a lot of things that he was struggling with concerning the idea, the truth, actually, of whether healing belongs to us today. And most people took the, the negative view of that and said that God does heal. He does have the ability to heal, but he doesn't heal everybody. So in that sense, healing had been done away with. Well, when the Lord showed him Mark chapter 5 and asked him, did you notice that her faith made her whole? When Brother Hagin saw it, he spoke back to the Lord and he said, no, I didn't see that. And then the Lord asked him, just very simply, have you ever heard anybody say that faith's been done away with? Well, he never heard that. And so he told the Lord that. No, I've never heard that. And the Lord answered back and said, no, and you never will. Because if there is no faith, there is no church. There is no salvation. There is nothing available for mankind to have hope in in any respect. Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God. We know that faith, according to Romans chapter 10, faith is the only means whereby we obtain faith to be saved and enter into salvation. So if faith's been done away with, there is no church. There is no possibility for salvation in any respect and in any way whatsoever. Well, then the Lord took him back to Mark chapter 5 and said, if her faith made her whole, your faith can make you whole. So he began trying to appropriate faith and act in faith. He didn't know the, the principles that we take for granted to a great degree through him and through his teaching. He didn't know how faith worked. He didn't even know what faith was. But he would grow and grow and grow little by little, day by day. And he came to the place where he found these verses of scripture in, in Proverbs chapter 4. And he said, of all the things that it says, the hardest one for me was to see myself well. Was to see myself well. Folks, everything you see or what you see has everything to do with what you'll have from God. 
I'm not a motorcycle rider, but there was a time many years ago where my brother and I made plans to rent some motorcycles and drive up the coast to, uh, well, where were we going? Carmel. And so we were planning to do that, and, and because I wasn't a motorcycle rider, he was. He had uh, motorcycles in Alabama, in Birmingham, where he lived. And it's easy to ride down there because the traffic's not like it is here and a lot of roads to take and that type of thing. But I researched it and I found out that what I was going to have to do to get a motorcycle license was take a motorcycle safety course. And it was a, uh, a course that lasted over a couple of weekends and a couple of different Saturdays and, and that type of thing. And one thing that they taught me about riding motorcycles that I never would have thought about but it makes such a good spiritual analogy, is this. Riding a motorcycle, the tendency is to look at what your front wheel is doing. The tendency is to keep your head down and, and check the road just right in front of your front tire. But they taught me that the motorcycle will go where you look. You'll automatically steer the motorcycle to where, whatever you're looking at. Well, if you're looking down at your wheel... You can't see what's really in front of you. And so they, would, they taught us, and there were all kinds of slalom courses that they'd set up and different rides and things like that. And in one place, there was a great big sweeping curve. And in the middle of that sweeping curve, there was such a tendency, such a temptation to bring your eyes away from the end of the curve back to where you are. But they taught you to do just the opposite of your natural inclination. And so if you look at the end of the curve... You can just take the motorcycle right over where it's supposed to be. And I started thinking about that spiritually. And that's so true in spiritual things and not just in motorcycle riding. What you see yourself doing is what you'll do. What you see yourself having is what you'll have. Don't stop and look in front of your front tire. Don't look at the circumstances that you're experiencing or what you're going through in, in the present moment. Look at where you're headed. And it'll bring you to the place that God wants you to be. Now turn with me to Numbers chapter 21, please. Brother Hagin went into great detail on several occasions about how he saw himself die, how he had watched them in his mind's eye and his imagination he saw them put him in the casket. He saw the funeral. He saw them bury him in the ground. He saw the seasons change over his grave. And he said that was so ingrained in him that it took a real conscious effort for him to see himself any other way. And folks, the reality is if you don't see yourself with the answer, you won't have the answer. If you don't see yourself with what God says is yours, then what God says is yours, even though the Bible says it's been purchased by the blood of Jesus, it won't come to pass for you. Numbers chapter 21, I'm going to start reading in verse 4, talking about the children of Israel. It says, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to encompass, to, to compass or go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. I want you to see that portion of the scripture folks the soul of the people was much discouraged by, because of the way now this shows you right out in front very clearly why the devil does what he does 
to discourage us in life. He's trying to get them to be discouraged. The circumstances are certainly discouraging. They're having to go the long way around to get to where they want to be. And it says the people, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Look at the first part of verse 5. And the people spoke against God. Folks, discouragement has a very specific purpose concerning you and your life. The devil wants you to be discouraged so that you'll speak against God or speak against his word. So the people spoke against God and against Moses. And here's what they said. They asked, wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. That light bread is the manna that's, that appears every morning except for the Sabbath day. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Now, when we come across verses of Scripture like this, the King James translation at least makes it appear that God's behind the work of the serpents. But as Dr. Young, the greatest Hebrew scholar of his day, recounted in his book, Hints to Bible Interpretation, he points out that there's a, a, a different verb in the Hebrew language that's real difficult for the, uh, for the translation into English. Now, the King James translation is literally a transliteration. And what that means is the translators translated as much word for word as they could. And they would avoid adding other words in until, unless they deemed it just absolutely necessary. And so this is one of the places where they might have done us a favor or done us a service by adding a couple of words in here to show that it was permission rather than causation. God didn't cause the fiery serpents to come into the camp. Now I want to prove that to you real quickly. I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to come back to Numbers 21 in just a few minutes. But let me read you some things from Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is Moses giving commandment to the children of Israel about their entering into the promised land. He's not going to lead them in. So the whole, pretty much the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell address to the people. And so here he's talking about what to expect when they come into the promised land and take possession of it and so forth. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the, the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. This is what Jesus quoted to the devil in Matthew 4, 4, when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth or disciplines his son, so the Lord thy God chastens or disciplines thee. Therefore shalt thou keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. 
For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou might eat or shall eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, that must be okay with God. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Now notice in verse 11, it takes a different tack. It issues a warning. Beware thou, beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses, God must be okay with that, and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, God must be okay with all those things too. Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents, and scorpions, and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. Now we could keep reading and see more of the warning that, that uh, Moses issues to the people. But I want you to notice that it talked about God leading them through the wilderness and protecting them and providing for them in a land where there were fiery serpents and scorpions. So here in, in Numbers chapter 21, it's not saying that God sent or caused the fiery serpents to come into the camp. But rather the picture that we should have of this and the way that this worked was that all the time that the people of Israel were doing what God commanded them to do, the protection from these scorpions and fiery serpents was in place. So what happened was their protection departed from them. Not that God did something, not that God changed. He never changes. It's the people that changed. Now with that in mind, let me go back to Numbers chapter 21 and reread some scriptures there. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither there is any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the, and the Lord sent fiery serpents. Well, we see that the fiery serpents were already there. But the protection from those fiery serpents departed from the people of Israel. The Lord sent or allowed fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Now notice what the people said in verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Notice they're not asking for relief from what God has done to them. They're identifying that their own actions have created the problem for them. He said, they said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. 
And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, notice this, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now we're going to come back and talk about this a little bit more, but I want to go to another scripture real quickly. John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, talking about the serpent of brass, the story in Numbers 21, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then that leads us into verse 16, nearly everybody's favorite scripture, that beloved scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So notice the context that Jesus says what he does in verse 14. The context is the gift of God's only son to mankind to die a sacrificial death for us, to die as our substitute. And Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Now, folks, Jesus is identifying with this story in Numbers chapter 21. He's identifying that the Numbers 21 event or the things that happened in this portion of Scripture are pointing toward himself. These things are fulfilled. The type was fulfilled when Jesus hung on the cross. Now notice several things. We've already seen that the people identified that it was their sin that caused the problem, not God doing something against them. But it's interesting how that Jesus identified with something that represents sin and the devil, the serpent of brass. Why not a gold lamb on the pole? That's the way we like to think of Jesus. We like to think of Jesus in his goodness and his mercy and in the purity of his soul as a sinless, spotless lamb that died for us as our substitute. But folks, if Jesus really died for us as a substitute, that means he had to be made sin and death. That's why the serpent of brass is on the pole. It's not a lamb. It's Jesus who was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now here's a question for you. There's, you know as well as I do, there's a lot of the church world that denies the reality that healing is in the atonement. Or in other words, that healing was provided for mankind through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, just like the price was paid for sin. So also the price was paid for our physical well-being our healing and our health. Now, those that reject that notion and think that Jesus only provided forgiveness of sins and not healing for the physical body, then I have a question. If healing is not part of the atonement, why was a type of the atonement used that Jesus identified with for the people of the Old Testament to receive their healing? Jesus couldn't identify with this event. He couldn't identify with Moses lifting up the serpent of brass in the wilderness unless what the Old Testament type 
was part of what he paid the price for on the cross too. It wouldn't make sense for a type of the atonement to be used to heal the people if healing was never intended to be part of the atonement. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now notice what it says about the people of Israel receiving their healing. Let's read this again. Take it apart just a little bit. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Now, folks, God could have just caused the serpents to disappear. He certainly had the power to do so, didn't he? But notice that he gives us an example, something that according to Jesus when he was here on the earth said represented him. A type that Jesus himself would fulfill. So the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, notice this phrase, when he looketh upon it shall live. When he looketh upon it, he shall live. Now, folks, this word look doesn't just mean a casual glance. It doesn't just mean to acknowledge that the serpent of brass has been put on a pole. It means to look intently. And the word that's used here really has more to do with the intensity of your look or the intensity of your gaze than any other thing. In other words, Moses is instructed by the Lord to tell the people, Keep your eyes on this serpent of brass if you want to receive your healing. Well, if they're keeping their eyes on the serpent of brass, they can't be looking at anything else, which is the whole point. See, the snakes are still at their feet. God didn't just drive out the the fiery serpents from the camp of Israel in a moment of time. And I would submit to you also that since it was the sin of the people, they clearly recognized that. We've sinned. We spoke against God. We spoke against Moses. It's our sin that's caused this problem. I would further in, uh, point out to you that the forgiveness of sins had to be included in this fiery serpent of brass or this serpent of brass on the pole. Their sins had to be forgiven for them to be able to receive their healing. So the type of what Jesus fulfilled included not just forgiveness of sins but also healing for the physical body now it tells us a little bit more about looking at the serpent on on the pole Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld same thing looked carefully intently when he beheld the serpent of brass he lived So they're looking at the serpent. Them looking at what God intended to represent Jesus in the Old Testament. Them fixing their gaze on the serpent of brass that was on the pole. And nothing else. Not the circumstances of their feet. Don't you know if a lot of people have been killed already by these fiery serpents. Everybody is keeping their eye peeled. Every step they take they're making sure they're not stepping on a snake. Sure would have been easy to keep your, feet, keep your eyes on your feet, wouldn't it? Sure would have been easy to keep your eyes on that which represents the world and the circumstances of the world rather than looking up at God's redemptive 
illustration. See, what you and I look at is everything. You may remember in Numbers chapter 13 where the children of Israel get to the edge of the promised land. Twelve spies go in to the promised land to spy the land out. They come back and ten of the twelve have an evil report or a report of unbelief. They simply said, we are not able to take the land for the people are too strong for us. Caleb and Joshua take another position. They say that because God's on our side and we've got the word of God, we've got God's promise, then certainly we can take care of defeating the enemies that are in the promised land. We defeated the Egyptian, the Egyptian army, the army of Pharaoh. We can take this too. But the men said something very instructive, very revealing in my opinion. They said we are not able to take the land. For the people that dwell therein are stronger than us. We are in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we are in their sight. We are in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we are in their sight. Now we find out 40 years later that they're wrong about what the enemies see in them. 40 years later after the children of Israel forfeit going into the promised land. And all that adult generation from the age of 20 and older die out in the wilderness. They come right around to the very same place they were before. This time Joshua is the leader of the children of Israel. And he sends two spies in to represent the faithfulness of Caleb and Joshua. Rather than 12 spies which was one person from each tribe. They go into the city of Jericho. They sneak into the city of Jericho and they begin talking to Rahab the harlot who had a house on top of the wall. Archaeologists tell us that the wall was 100 feet high. That's a 10-story building and 50 feet thick. So there's plenty of room for her to have her house there on the wall along with many others, I'm sure. And when she finds out who they are, they come to her and they reveal themselves to her she says something very interesting. She says, where have you been? We know, talking about the people of the, the city, we know that this city is yours. We know that the land is yours. Now, how would they know that? She, de she describes why. She tells the, the reason why that everybody knows that. She says, we heard what God did for you against Egypt when you crossed the Red Sea. That was 40 years ago. These people who remember the ten spies said see us as grasshoppers did not see them as grasshoppers. Folks, the lies that the devil tells you about what other people think about you, they're just lies. Don't see yourself based on what you think other people see you as. See yourself based on what God says about who you are. So the ten spies kept the congregation of Israel out of the promised land for 40 years because they had the wrong image of themselves. They had the wrong image of themselves. They looked at the circumstances. In this case, if we combine these two stories, they're looking at the snakes at their feet. They're looking at the natural difficulties they're looking at the trouble that they might have rather than the one who promised to deliver them and give them the promised land. 
they're seeing themselves according to their emotions rather than according to the truth. See, folks, no matter how we feel about ourselves, no matter how unworthy we may feel, no matter how inadequate we may feel, how powerless or weak we may feel, your feelings don't have anything to do with the truth. And the truth says, the truth of God's word, says that you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. You've been equipped and indwelt by the greater one. That your victory is always assured through faith. And that you can't be defeated unless you give up. Now that's the truth no matter how we feel. We may never feel righteous and it doesn't change one bit that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We may never, and I'm sure a lot of people won't, no matter what time that Jesus comes back for the church, no matter when it is, I'm sure there will always be a lot of people that never feel righteous but will discover that they've been made righteous no matter what they feel. This was a very key issue when it comes to, to uh, Abraham's faith. You remember over in Romans chapter 4, Abraham had no natural circumstances to believe in. The, the scripture says it this way, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations. Well, what did he base that hope on? According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now he's talking about one time when God appeared to him and talked to him about his seed. Abraham didn't have any children at that point. And so he's kind of complaining to the Lord about it. And the Lord shows him the sky and asks him to number the stars. Well, Abraham says that's impossible. Nobody can number the stars. And God said, so shall your seed be. As numerous as the stars are in the sky, so shall it be with your descendants. Well, Abraham comes to the point where he's almost 100 years old. He's in Abel. He, along with his wife, are incapable of having children anymore. Their bodies don't function reproductively any longer. And God reminds him of the promise. Well, Abraham doesn't have any natural strength or natural vigor to look at and say, well, yeah, I am different than most hundred-year-olds. He has no natural circumstance whatsoever to put his faith in. But without faith, it's impossible to please God because without faith, you can't receive from God. So it's going to take faith on his part to bring this about. What does he put faith in? He puts faith in what God said about his seed, that they'd be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So what did he believe? He believed according to that which was spoken, not according to what he could see or feel, but according to what was spoken. So shall your seed be. I like the American Standard Version of Romans chapter 4 and verse 20. Verse 19 or 20, I'm not sure which one. It must be verse 19. It says it this way, but looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. Looking at the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. Now, folks, that's a, the 180 degree turn, completely different, completely opposite from what the 10 spies came back and reported to the people about the promised land. The ten spies knew the promise of God. He told them already that he had given them the promised land. 
But rather than going through and spying out the land with the understanding that since God said this is ours, I'm checking this out to see what ours looks like. They came back influenced by the circumstances, by the size of the walls around the city of Jericho, by the size of the armies of the Amalekites and the, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and whoever else was there. They came back saying, I don't know what about that, that God said, but we're no match for the strength of the people, which was 180 degrees different, completely different, totally different than what Abraham did. Now, who's in the Hall of Fame of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? The ten spies or Abraham? Abraham is. Because his faith became a model for the church and the children of God to emulate, to imitate. No matter what the circumstances look like, keep your eyes on the word. Looking under the word of God, he staggered not through unbelief. You want to keep yourself out of unbelief? Keep your eyes on the word. Keep your eyes on the word. Keep your eyes on the word. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, things have gotten real tough. That's why you need to keep your eyes on the word. Yeah, but the doctor said things have gotten worse. That's why you need to keep your eyes on the word. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writing to the church, talking about the difference between the inward man and the outward man and the experience that we have here on this earth. Let's start in verse 17, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now the light affliction that Paul was experiencing was an ongoing persecution by the Jews against him. His life was constantly in danger. Well, the children of, of, uh, children of God, the Christians in Corinth, may have been facing certain persecutions and difficulties too. But he says it in a way that no matter what your aff afflictions are, this applies to you. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not on the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Notice he says in verse 17 that our light affliction has the opportunity, has the, uh, the potential to bring us into a great, glor glorious resolution where we receive the promises of God and they're made real and true in our lives. It has the potential to do that. But the, pot the potential is reached only while we look at the things of God, which, are, which includes his word. Let me read that again. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, compared to eternity it is. Work, it seems like it's forever when we're in the middle of it. But compared to eternal, eternity, it's just a moment in time. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look. While we look not at the things which are seen. Not at the circumstances of the earth. Not at the apparent lack, the apparent lack of funds and resources to meet our needs. While we look not at the things which are seen. The condition of our bodies. The report of the doctors. As well meaning as they are to help us. The doctor doesn't have the final say unless you say so. 
while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. That word temporal means subject to change. Everything that we see in this physical realm is subject to change. Everything in this physical realm will eventually change completely. God will create a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says, so that everything that we see here and now will pass away. Every physical circumstance, everything that you can see and feel, all of that will eventually pass away, completely be redone, if you will, when God makes a new heaven and a new earth. So why should we put much stock in what we can see and feel when we know that this is subject to change anyhow? The, the agent of change, the method of change, is very clearly stated to be faith in God's word and in his promises. Jesus went to great detail to tell us that the faith of God is to believe in your heart and say with your mouth and command the mountain to move out of your way and it shall obey you. Everything, every physical thing, every physical reality can be changed by the operation of faith. There's not one thing that can't. That means sickness and disease, which is a part of this physical realm, can be changed. That means lack of resources and funds, which are part of this physical realm, can be changed. Jesus said that faith was so widespread and so all-encompassing that nothing would be impossible unto us. He said specifically, all things are possible to him that believes. Well, that impossibility that turns into possibility through faith includes everything that we can see and touch in this world. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Why does the devil want you to look at things that are seen? Well, we saw in Numbers chapter 21, the reason that he brings discouragement is to try to turn us away from the truth. To try to get us to do what the children of Israel did, which is speak against God. Everything about physical circumstances that come against you, everything about physical circumstances that try to tell you that the promises of God are not true, everything in this world, this physical realm, every circumstance, every action that is designed to distract you is to try to get you to give up your faith in God and in his word. So what are we to do? Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. He's just given us the hall of fame of heroes of faith in, ver in chapter 11. Wherefore, seeing we also are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Notice he's talking about weights and sins. See, there are some things that aren't sinful, but they just keep us from believing or keeping us from giving the best effort that we can to God and his word not everything's a sin but the devil will use not only sin but also weights distractions 
try to keep us from keeping our eyes on the Word of God. So let's lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. Now Jesus is the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if we're looking unto Jesus, we have to be looking unto the Word of God. If we're to keep our eyes on Jesus, we certainly want to keep our eyes on what He's done. We certainly want to keep our eyes on the sacrifice that He made. We certainly want to keep our eyes on the fact that He was our substitute. And what He bore, we need not bear. The sins that He bore, we need not bear. The sicknesses He bore, we need not bear. The poverty He bore, we need not bear. Because He bore those things as our substitute, our replacement. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Jesus said of the Word of God, Heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word will never fail. Not one of the smallest parts of the Word will ever fail. So if we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, we're keeping our eyes on the Word of God. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, the gospel of Christ is the good news of what Jesus has done for us as our uh, substitute and as our replacement. A sacrifice, a worthy sacrifice in our place. So he said, I'm not ashamed of the good news of the finished work of Christ. For it, the finished work of Jesus, it is the power of God unto salvation. Now that word salvation is the Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O. And it's an all-inclusive term. It means to rescue, to deliver, to make safe, to make sound, and to heal. So he's saying the word of God is the power to heal. To everyone that believes. Jew and Gentile. So if we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, we have to keep our eyes on what he paid for in our place. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now folks, this is the clincher for me. Because Romans 10, 17 tells us very clearly, without any doubt, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. So if Jesus is the author of our faith, that means it has to be the word of God that we can put faith in. He begins our faith with the promise of God. So then the finisher, which means to bring to an end, the finisher of our faith comes by us keeping our eyes on the word too. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's what Abraham did. Abraham didn't let himself look away to the condition of his body. He didn't allow himself to be distracted in any way from what God had promised. He kept his eyes firmly fixed on the promise that God made that his seed would be like the stars of the sky. That's the only thing that he looked at. That's the only thing that he watched. That's the only thing that he refused to be distracted from. And God, in his faithfulness, honored his promise to Abraham just like he honors his promise to us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Folks, no matter what we're going through, we keep our eyes on God's word, which is the answer for whatever we face. 
it's impossible for it not to come to pass in our lives. No matter how long it takes, no matter how we might need to stand against and to fight discouragement, if we keep our eyes on the word, if we keep our eyes on the promise of God, Satan doesn't have enough power to keep it from coming into reality. If he could, he would do anything and everything he can to stop the promises from coming to us. But he doesn't decide that. You do. I do. We're the ones that have authority on the earth. And we have the capacity, we have the ability to keep our eyes on the word no matter what's going on around us and see the things around us change. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus bore our sicknesses and carried our pains and that with his stripes we are healed. We thank you that he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. And through him being made sin in our place, we are made the righteousness of God through his action and through his sacrifice. We thank you, Father, that Jesus was made poor for our sakes so that we through his poverty might be made rich. Thank you, Lord, that all these things have been done. And so we declare that we are the righteousness of God, we are the healed of God, and we are favored of God and made rich. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us.